0: One of my favorite things about my time at St. Luke's Long Beach was taking our youth on retreat. It only happened three times while I was there, but each one was wonderful and memorable. Mostly we had fun, played games, and ate bad food. (laughs) But I did manage to slip in some conversations about faith when they weren't paying attention, when they weren't looking. (laughs) I remember on our second retreat, we were sitting in a circle on these rocks in a little memorial garden at St. Francis Episcopal Church in Palos Verdes. I said to the seven or so kids assembled, okay, here's your big chance, and it's not going to happen very often in your life. Ask the priest anything, and I will answer honestly. I figured they would have some basic questions about God. I could impress them with my answers and they would think I was great. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Their queries were profound and really hard. Is there a hell? And who's going there? Why would God allow evil to happen like the Holocaust? I don't even remember my answers. I only know that I was sweating bullets the whole time. (laughs) They were not letting up. And I was beginning to realize my hubris in thinking this would end well. (laughs) Finally, one thoughtful young man, Ethan, raised his hand and said, So, you know how they say we're even closer to discovering life on other planets than ever? Well, if we do, will our God be their God too? Or is God just the God of Earth and human beings? Wow, that's a very good question, I exclaimed. A very, very good question, I slowly repeated, stalling while I tried to think of an answer. Finally, I said, here's what I believe, and I think what our Christian faith tells us. God is the God of all the universe, of all creation, so nothing is outside of God's oversight. If we find aliens on other planets, God will be their God too. But they may not believe in God or see God like we do. It's like here on earth. There are many paths to God. Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Hindu. And there are others who don't believe in God. Atheists, some Buddhists. But it all leads to the same God, the same divine creator that we either believe in or don't believe in. Alien faith, I think, would just be another path to God. Assuming they believe in anything. But here's the thing I concluded. Most of us humans, from cavemen making drawings on walls to astronauts in space, we have this inner longing for the divine. And I believe God placed it there so we could then search for God, which some of us do through our religion. And maybe aliens will have that longing too. Not bad, huh? (laughs) Perhaps the closest thing to an alien for first-century followers of Jesus was an Ethiopian eunuch. The term Ethiopia was used back then to define a more general area in Africa, just south of Egypt. It was more like today's northern part of the Sudan. In the first century, Ethiopia was considered the southern edge of the earth. Its people had skin even darker than the swarthy Mediterranean's, and it was ruled by women. The condesi, a royal title given to these female ruling monarchs, much like the title pharaoh in Egypt. They were administrators and warriors. Their husbands, the kings, were considered gods and thus too sacred to engage in matters of state. Some of you husbands out there might be pretty happy about that and wish that those times could come back. So while hubby stayed home and got pampered, the queen and her ministers were getting the real work done. The man Philip meets on the road to Gaza was a eunuch. I'm pretty sure most of you know what that means, but just in case you don't, think of it as a vasectomy gone horribly wrong. (laughs) Eunuchs were valued in royal courts because they had little reason to overthrow their rulers, being unable to create their own dynasty. In fact, some men were made eunuchs so they could serve in governmental posts. One might ponder the salutary effects of such an operation on certain members of our Congress. (laughs) Might help them pass some honest legislation. Just saying. We don't know whether this particular eunuch was born that way or castrated, but we are pretty sure of two things. First, he was in charge of the Condice's treasury and so heavily involved in the trade business. Second, he was a follower of the Jewish faith. Though not Jewish himself, he might have been what is called a God-fearer, kind of a, a Jewish groupie who believed in the one God, followed the teachings, but couldn't go all in on some of the traditions like circumcision, which for this guy wouldn't have been a problem, but (laughs) other things. Philip is sent by an angel to meet this eunuch on a lonely road, a wilderness road, while the man travels in his chariot reading the prophet Isaiah. In the span of a short and bumpy ride, Philip converts the eunuch by showing how this passage along with others in the Hebrew scriptures predict the life and death of Jesus Christ. Inspired, the eunuch is baptized, and he comes up out of the water just in time to see Philip disappear into thin air. So, to review. In the book of Acts, in the middle of the disciples' first efforts at converting Jews into followers of Jesus in the dusty towns of Judea, which are by now familiar to us from the gospel narratives, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, plops into the narrative. <laughs> a dark-skinned, castrated nobleman from Ethiopia, land at the end of the world and home of women warriors, has him traveling in a chariot in the wilderness reading Hebrew scripture when suddenly Philip appears out of nowhere, converts and baptizes him, then steps into his Star Trek transporter and gets whisked away to the land of Azotis. Can you see how the story's genre suddenly goes from biblical to sci-fi? Yeah. This is why I say that the Ethiopian eunuch was probably the closest thing to an alien for those first century followers of Jesus who heard this story. And Luke places him in the narrative for one reason, especially to show that God's reach is universal. No one is left out. The final words Jesus speaks to his disciples before ascending into heaven are, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Everyone is included, no matter their color, country of origin, gender, sexual status. And by extension, I would say, yeah, even aliens from other planets. Underlying our young man's question on the youth retreat is a basic thought that we all grapple with from time to time. Who is God? In today's epistle from John, we hear, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. The funny thing is, this is one of those verses in the Bible that actually helped me with my faith. Because if no one has ever seen God, then no one can say without a doubt exactly who or what God is. None of us can say, you either believe in this precise vision of God that I have, or you're not a believer. Of course, most religions do that anyway. But we cannot impose our version of the divine onto others or onto God. And for someone like me who has sometimes struggled with doubt, this divine elusiveness is actually an open invitation to search for God with my own heart. And maybe our task as a community of faith is to find a vision of God together. So, who is God? One answer lies in today's gospel reading. Jesus says, I am the vine and my father is the vine grower. I am the vine and you are the branches. In other words, God is relationship. Another answer comes from today's epistle. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us, and God's love is perfected in us. In other words, we can never see God directly face to face, but God lives with us. God's love is perfected among us. We see God in each other's faces, in the love and relationship we manifest in our community and in our world. I am certainly coming to know God even better in my six months here with you at St. Luke's. God is like light. We can't really see it, but we can see the color on the walls, on the floor, on each other's clothes, the windows all around us, because those objects have been touched by light. Our love is the color that happens when God touches us. But our true color, our love, is not fully realized until others see it and engage it. And it's in that relationship that we experience God in our lives. I close with a story that I think illustrates who God is. I made a friend in seminary while we were working together on a class project. His name was John. He had been hit by a car Nine years before I met him, while walking across an intersection in the Mission District in San Francisco. As a result, he had a permanent brain injury, which compromised his verbal and social skills. In describing the accident, he told me that the car that hit him threw him 20 feet into the air, and when he landed, he rolled and rolled across the road until he came to rest under a public transit bus a muni bus. Now, it was at a bus stop and the light was red. A woman and a man walking by waved frantically at the bus driver to keep him from driving off and running over John. And then that woman who was waving her arms did a remarkable thing. She got down on her hands and knees, crawled under the bus, and lay down right next to my friend. Then she took hold of the one part of his body that wasn't covered in blood, the fingertips of his left hand. In those few minutes before the ambulance arrived, this woman, this stranger, gently squeezed his fingertips and told him over and over that he was going to be all right. My friend, who was nearly unconscious, thought it was God comforting him and squeezing his fingers. He only found out months later that it was this woman. But I think he was right the first time.